Well, it's hard to read those words with dry eyes in one sense, isn't it? Something so deeply touching about a, 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 a having to say goodbye like that, isn't it? The uh, farewell services that pastors give to churches are some of the most heart-wrenching services that a pastor can give. And here you see Paul with the elders, with the Ephesian elders, uh, basically saying goodbye to them for good. He knows that he'll likely never see them again in the land of the living. And that's deeply painful to him. And for us, uh, dear congregation, this morning, as we consider the office of elder, now, of course, this is uh, prompted by the fact that we installed elders last week. And, and so it, uh, it came to my mind that before I begin another series, uh, I just finished the series on Genesis, before I begin another series, it would be helpful to have a sermon on an elder, on the office of elder, and on the office of deacon. So next week we'll consider deacons, but this week, elders. And when we come to consider the office of elder, we naturally begin in Scripture. And we ask ourselves, right, where is the, where is, where you might even just do a word search, right, for elder in the Bible, and try to find where are those places that the Bible teaches us what the office of elder is. And so we want to start at the beginning. We want to start at the beginning, and so we do. And we turn to Exodus 3 and verse 16, because if you did a concordance search for the word elders, this is the first passage that would come up, Exodus 3, 16. Now, in this passage, right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God has called Moses uh, to, to stand before him and to lead his people Israel out of Egypt. And then God tells Moses in chapter 3 and verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, and so on and so forth. So here we find that the idea of an elder, or at least the existence of this body of men called elders, is already in existence. This is not when it began. It is already in existence. There are these men in Israelite society who are known as elders. And so we must conclude, my friends, that uh, just as in any society of people, there's going to be somebody, right, with, with leadership and influence who's going to take charge of that society, that so also in Israelite society, these men of influence at the heads of their families and at the heads of their tribes grew to be respected as leaders. How they were chosen, whether by election or simply by hereditary, or who knows how they were chosen, we're not told. But these men rose to prominence in Israelite society. And you can ask, well, were they leaders in the civil realm, or were they also leaders in the religious realm? Well, in Israelite society, those two weren't separated. The religious and the civil were so bound up together that a leader in the religious realm was also a leader in the spiritual and and, uh, religious realm. You could think of Moses, right, is the perfect example of that. He represented Israel not just before God and Mount Sinai, but he managed all the civil affairs as well. In fact, remember when Jethro came to visit Moses, he rebuked Moses for taking all the uh, responsibility for judging the different conflicts that arose in Israelite society on himself. And Jethro said, you need to delegate this task out to other men who can assist you with that. So these elders were just leaders within the community, both in a religious sense and in a civil sense. 
Now, as time went on, however, in Israelite society, something happened. The exile. Remember, God punished his people for their idolatry. The Assyrians came in the first place and took the ten tribes away. And a couple hundred years later, the Babylonians came and took the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin off into Babylon. Well, now, Israel is no longer, uh, well, Israel is prevented or hindered from worshiping in the synagogue. And so now you have the rise of the synagogue. Now, synagogue is just a word that means gathering. It's really the exact synonym as our word church. It just means assembly, gathering. So in the synagogue, there also arose leadership. And synagogues were places for Jewish worship, but not in Jerusalem. Again, the Israelites could not go to Jerusalem anymore. They were driven off into exile. And even after they returned from exile, they continued to worship in synagogues, which were local places of worship and instruction. But these synagogues were ruled by a body of elders. Now you might ask, what about prophet, priests, and kings? Weren't they the office? Didn't they hold office in Israelite society? Well, the kings, of course, were primarily uh, hereditary in nature, right? God had promised David, especially, right, the family of David, that his sons would rule. The priests, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. The prophets were specially called by God from wherever they were. Remember, Amos was called from being a farmer, a fruit farmer, to be a prophet. So the prophets were called uh, on special occasion to bring the word of God to his people. Now when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the New Testament, and we start to ask ourselves about elders in the New Testament, we find that the elders are not called priests. Again, you have to Sometimes you have to put yourself in the shoes of the the very first Christians, right? And especially the the leadership of the early Christian community. We need leaders in our churches. What shall we call them? Shall we call them priests? No, that's not the word that was chosen. My friends, in the New Testament, all Christians are priests, right? You can read that, especially in the book of Revelation, right? That all the people of God are priests, They all have access through Jesus Christ to God the Father. So despite what Roman Catholics would tell us, the elders of the church are not called, or let's just say the the leaders of the church are not called priests. Neither are they called prophets. Now this is a bit closer though, because in the New Testament we do find that there are certain people who the Spirit of God has given a prophetic gift. They have the the privilege of receiving words from God directly. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about that, uh, but just know that the the word prophets also is not the word that is applied to the leadership of the early Christian church. There are prophets in the church, but they're not the leaders. And, of course, they're, they're not called kings either. So what we find then in the early church, is that the first leadership of the early church are called elders. And where does that come from? Well, that comes right from the synagogue. It appears that under the providence of God and under the approval of God, the government that applied to the synagogues was taken over into the Christian church. 
Now, at first, that might sound a bit difficult to, to follow until you remember, my friends, that all the first Christians in the early church, right? And think about the very first Christians. Think about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came down and when people began to believe in Christ in numbers. They were all Jews. We remember that. They were all Jews. In fact, we know that one of the main issues in the early church was that many of the Christians continued to practice their Jewish practices. They continued to keep a Saturday Sabbath. They continued to keep the Jewish Sabbath. They continued to honor and respect many of the food laws, even though Paul says you don't need to worry about those anymore. And even though the the Christians that came from a Gentile background had no idea what those laws were about, and Paul says that's okay, we know that many of the Jewish Christians continued those practices, and we're not surprised by that. Whatever religious practices we may have grown up, we continue, right? You have religious practices that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents practice. It's, It's woven into your DNA, right? And you continue to practice them. Not insisting, of course, that everybody do them. Not everybody has to live like you do. But there are certain things we do and practice in our lives, right? Because we grew up with them and we're a bit sentimental about them. Well, in the same way, the Jewish Christians continued many of their Jewish practices, although, remember, Paul draws a line at circumcision, right? Circumcision, Paul had to say, no, no, circumcision has no spiritual value at all anymore, right? Because Christ came to circumcise your children, at least in a religious spiritual sense, is to deny that Christ came and shed his blood. But the other uh, uh, Jewish practices, Paul is is uh, agnostic on. He's he, if you if you like to keep doing them, you may. You do not need to keep doing them. I want to show this to you, my friends, in James chapter two, where we have an interesting word used, which shows this fact that so many of the early Christians continued the. Jewish practices. In fact, the early Christian churches were sometimes even called synagogues. Isn't that interesting? That Christian churches, where they believed in Christ and bowed before his lordship, were called synagogues. And you have an example of that in James 2. It does not come across in our English translation, but I think you'll see it quite easily. In James 2 and verse 2, it says, For if a man comes into your assembly. But the word there in Greek is synagogos, synagogue. So we have reason to believe that even the first gatherings of Christians to worship Christ and to come under his word were called synagogues. And we know that the book of James is the very earliest book in the New Testament to be written. The book book of James was written by the elder James, not the disciple James, the elder James, and it was written to Jewish Christians. In fact, when James was written, there may not have been a lot of Gentile Christians in the church at the time. It was very early in the Christian, in the history of the Christian church. So let's remember that fact then. All the Christians, all the first Christians were Jews. They carried over their practices from the synagogue. And one of those practices that they carried over was the practice of having elder rule. Elders ruled the church. Not one elder, but a body of elders ruled the church. So this is the origin then and, the, and the, the name elder, this is how we came to use this term of elder in the church. Now, before I continue, let me say something about apostles, because we know that there were apostles. Weren't they in charge of the church? Weren't they the ones that ruled the church? Certainly. Absolutely. 
<clears throat> but my friends, the apostle, the, the, the apostles was a unique office, unique to that time, and temporary. Now, why do I say that? Well, because when we go to Scripture to find out what an apostle is, and I would like to look through each of these texts with you. In Luke 24 and 46, uh, this is uh, is at the end uh, where Jesus, right before his ascension, and Jesus says to his disciples, thus it is written, this is Luke 24 and verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then what does it say in verse 48? You are witnesses of these things. That teaches us, my friends, that an apostle is a person who has personally witnessed the life, the sufferings, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you keep turning and you come, go past the book of John and go to book of Acts, and in one in Acts chapter 1 and verse 21, we find that the early church has a problem. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, is dead. They need to replace him. They need to replace Judas with another elder. And if you look in Acts 1 and verse 21, you see the apostles are saying there, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, they just weren't looking for any man who was a godly man who had leadership skills. No, an apostle had to be one who was a witness of the resurrection and the life and the suffering of Jesus. That's what an apostle was. And then in Acts 26, verse 16, we have another interesting verse because you remember that Paul, in fact, we just preached on that, I think it was last week, wasn't it? That Paul defends that he is an apostle. But Paul, when did you see the Lord Jesus? When were you a witness of his life and sufferings and resurrection? And notice what Paul says in Acts 26 and verse 16. That when Jesus appeared to Paul outside the city of Damascus, Jesus told Paul, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. And on that basis, my friends, Paul says, I am an apostle. Not because I want to be an apostle and because I'm, I'm trying to take hold of the office, right, and grasp it greedily because I want power. No, because Jesus Christ appeared to Paul and said, you are going to be a witness of my teaching and of my resurrection and my my having been resurrected. Paul was a witness to the resurrected Christ. And therefore, he is an apostle. Now, my friends, we know that there are are churches today that, that speak about, you know, they have such and such an apostle in their congregation or at the head of their church. They sometimes call their bishops or their Uh, pastors, apostles. Again, in our churches, we never use that term. And this is why. Because we understand that the word apostle applies to a unique group of men in the first church who were witnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, we don't use that term to discuss or to uh, 
identify the leadership of our church. Now, the apostles also had a unique authority from God because they were given uh, the privilege of writing down the, the word of God. The elders did not do that in the church. The apostles did. Well, then let's come to the responsibilities of the elders. This is actually more an application then to our own to our own uh, experience here. Uh, and my friends, uh, many of you, most of you, the vast majority of you are not elders. I understand that. But you may become an elder someday. But that's not even the most important reason for this. It's important that you as the congregation understand what an elder is to do. Because you also have a role in responding to the elders and their ministry that they perform in this church. And so it's important for men and women, for children and young people and older ones to understand what is it that the Bible gives an elder to do. I want you to understand that, and I believe all the elders here want the congregation as a whole. You know, sometimes you get the impression that elders meet behind closed doors in the dark with our secret handshake, and we and we, we, we ponder things, and, and right, and it's very mysterious, right? And only the initiated can really know what's going on in there. And that's really a terrible idea, isn't it? Right? And I hope to show you that from Scripture. Right? The, 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 the elders have a responsibility, and it's a very concrete and practical responsibility that uh, God has given his people. Well, what is the first thing that we can say about elders? My friends, in the book of Revelation we're brought to the very foundational fact, right? And that is an elder needs to worship. What am I saying here, my friends? I'm saying that an elder needs to be one who has bowed the knee to King Jesus. He needs to be a Christian. Now you can say, Pastor, do you really need to teach us this morning and to spend time telling us that elders need to be Christians? Yes. Yes, because elders are no different than other people. We can deceive ourselves and convince ourselves of all kinds of things that are true. And therefore, we have to bring ourselves, me as a pastor, my friends, I have to bring myself to the bar of God's word. I have to stand before the judgment seat of God, not in my capacity as a pastor or an elder, but as a sinner. And that's why I want to bring you to Revelation 5 and verses 1 through 10. This is where the Lamb of God comes to open the seals that are on this book. And I just want to jump to verse 8. When he, that is the Lamb of God, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And so I I ask you, brothers in the consistory, elders, but I ask all the men in the congregation, and I ask the women in the congregation, my friends, is this a place where we've come in our life? To bow before the Lamb of God. And you know that means something, my friends. That's not just a, a simple fact of submission to the Lamb of God. It means coming before the Lamb of God and bowing before him as a lamb. And you know that previously in the passage it has says, a lamb as it had been slain. Its blood had been shed. 
That means, my friends, that before we can talk about anything that an elder does in the life of the church, we need to talk personally what an elder does in his own life before the Lamb of God. That he has believed in Jesus Christ to the saving of his soul and to the forgiveness of his sins. That in the first place. Some of you will remember about Pastor Hendrik, Hendrik de Cook. Remember when we talked uh, about those uh, Wednesday night, in the Wednesday night sessions, we talked about the history of our denomination in the Netherlands. You'll remember, my friends, for how many years Hendrik de Cook pastored as an unconverted man. That's something, isn't it? He was the pastor, and by all accounts, he was a sincere, diligent pastor who labored hard for the good of his people. But by his own confession, my friends, he said he was unconverted. He had never bowed before the Lamb of God, confessing himself to be a lost sinner, confessing himself to come under the blood of Christ. And so that's also a possibility in our own day, brothers, that we think of the fact that as the pastor of the church and as the elders of the church, have I come before the Lamb of God? And my friends, we can ask ourselves uh, for the first time, but my friends, what about our daily our daily walk with God, coming before the Lamb of God and coming under His blood? You see, my friends, when we start there, now we are prepared to do the work of an elder. Because to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb that was slain brings a measure of humility into the heart of a man that nothing else can. When we bow there, that positions us to be an elder. That gives us, you might say, uh, well, it gives us the Spirit of God in the first place. And that humble commitment to the church and to the flock of God that nothing else can give us. And so I do want to spend time on that, my friends, and I do want to emphasize that. That in the first place, an elder is one who worships before the lamb as he'd been slain. That bleeding lamb of God and all that that implies. I come to the second point, my friends. An elder is one who exercises oversight. So an elder has authority. An elder has power in the church. Now again, this is a very counter-cultural idea, right? That there would be some men lifted up to a place of authority in the church. Now, as Christians, we're not surprised at this because we saw that already in the fifth commandment. But we see it in the life of the church, that God has given elders in the church to rule. And we don't want to downplay that in some way and say, well, you know, they don't really rule, they, they, they serve. And, and in all sorts of different ways that people try to get around the fact that, no, the elders have authority in the church. They have a measure of power that has given them to do their task. <clears throat> And I'm turning now to 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, where, a Peter, uh, where Peter uh, exhorts the church. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Now I want to stop there a minute, my friends, because you know that Peter was an apostle. In fact, he was one of the leading apostles. And yet see the humility of this man. He just identifies himself as a fellow elder. I'm just one of you. Now, he, he could have said, he could have said, I'm an apostle, I'm over you, I have a unique authority given me by God. I was a witness of the life, sufferings, and resurrection of Jesus. But he doesn't. He lays that aside. See, I can stand before you and say, I'm a fellow elder too. I have no right to say I'm an apostle. I, I, I can't go there, right? But this is my confession as well. The pastor isn't anything above an elder in the church. As your fellow elder and witness, 
of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So there it is, right? There's the scriptural warrant then that elders will exercise oversight. They exercise authority in the church. Now we can see that this authority is given us under the picture of shepherding. And this is repeatedly in the Bible, my friends. Uh, this, if, if you do a little word search on the word shepherd, that's very instructive actually. But notice verse 2 begins, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not because you were forced to be an elder, but because you love to be an elder. According to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So this is the power that God has given the elders. And my friends, if you're, if you're writing things down this morning, I would urge you to write this down. The way I, the way I, as I thought about this, that God has given elders power for flourishing. Power for flourishing. In other words, God has given power to the elders for the purpose of bringing the flock of God to flourish. That's what I think is behind that picture there that we're given of shepherding. That the power that God has given his, uh, the elders in the church is for the purpose of bringing the flock to a point where they are flourishing. Now, I don't know if you remember. I'd be very impressed if you did remember. But I don't know if you remember that some months back, many months back, I preached on the false shepherds from Ezekiel 34. What does it say about the false shepherds? Well, in Ezekiel 34, God says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed up. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. You see, my friends, the false shepherd shepherds the flock for his own flourishing. He eats the fat. He takes the wool. Right? He's, he's trying to get as much out of the flock for himself, you see? But the proper biblical idea of eldering and shepherding is the reverse, right? That it goes from the elder to the flock. The elder serves and gives of himself to the flock so that the flock will flourish. And that's the picture behind that idea of exercising oversight as a shepherd. And so it's always important that we put those two together. That the Bible would have us to think about elders as having power, yes, and we're not to downplay that. They have a real authority from God. But it is a authority as a shepherd. Power for flourishing. Power to bring flourishing to those over whom God has placed you. Now, another thing that we can say about the power, the authority that the elders have is that it is especially a teaching authority. A teaching authority. We find this again in a number of places. But most clearly, in Acts chapter 6, which we'll actually consider next week, because this is when the, the deacons are chosen. But why did the apostles, why did the early church see the need for deacons? Well, in verse 4 of Acts 6 and verse 4, we read 
that the apostles say, after telling the church to choose men to be deacons, but in verse 4 it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, in the early church, in the first days, the apostles did everything, right? They did everything. But now, they say, let's have deacons, and let's let the deacons be devoted to the ministries of mercy. We will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. And elsewhere, we know that the apostle Paul says that elders are to be able to teach. That's one of the characteristics he gives in the pastoral epistles, that they are to be able to teach. That means that the, uh, the elders have a, a responsibility in the church, especially to oversee the teaching ministries of the church. Well, I come now to the third point, which is diatrophies. Uh, I don't know how many of you read the third John recently, but diatrophies is a man who appears in John's third letter. So the very one of the very last books in the New Testament, we meet diatrophies. Diatrophies is a man in verse 9, 3 John 9, and John writes to the church there, He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So here's Diotrephes, an example of how not to elder. Diotrephes loves to be first among them. Now this happens in churches, doesn't it? There's a good number of churches that even though there's elders and there's deacons, everybody knows that they're ruled by basically one person. There's one man in the church who has all the influence and all the power. These things ought not so to be, my friends. Now, I understand. I understand that in in churches, there are bound to be those people who, because of their gifts and because of their, hopefully because of their godliness, but sometimes it's not that way, right? Because of their wealth or because of their power or their personality, they rise to a place of influence in the church. And then this Uh, this principle of church government that God has given us begins to be deflated. It begins to be uh, negated because one man rises to a position of power in the church and begins to manipulate things according to his own power. Maybe we can call this the diatrophies principle. There's one man who loves to be first. And pretty soon the church becomes his own little project And he's governing and manipulating the church according to his own principles. There are pastors in the church, in churches today, who are called senior pastors. My friend, what does that mean, a senior pastor? I hate that term. Senior pastors? Where does does the Bible speak to us about such a thing? The Bible speaks to us about elders ruling the church. And the implication there is that these elders work together as a body to govern Christ's church. And that if there's one person who loves to be first, that that's not a good thing. The Apostle John rebukes such a principle. He rebukes such an idea. That ought not so to be. And that's why we have a Presbyterian, by the word, uh, the word presbyter is just a Greek word that means elder. It just means elder rule. Presbyterian form of government is just elder ruled churches. We have elders in our churches who work together on an equal basis, on an equal footing. And yes, my friends, even the pastor is in that. All right, you could say, well, the pastor went to seminary. You know, he knows these languages and 
all these different things, right, that a pastor supposedly knows and does, my friends, we work together as a body. And that's why in our churches also we even have things like term limits, right, to prevent this, this diatrophies thing from happening in our churches. So diatrophies, an example of what should not be the case. And I think of a, a verse like Ephesians 4, verse 11, where again we read that God gave apostles prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And why does he give these different gifts in the church? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What does that teach us, my friends? That far from elders wanting, uh, loving to be first in the church, they, they ought to love to be last. In fact, they should see it as their very function within the church to equip the saints for ministry. That the people who sit in the pews who have a ministry, and by the way, hear that, right? Every saint has a ministry, right, that you are called to perform by God. That the elders then have the responsibility to equip you. Again, remember what I said, power for flourishing. Not diatrophies, I love to be first. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book with my picture emblazoned on the front. And on the church's website, there is pastor so-and-so, right? No, 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 my friends. Our task is to equip you to be ministers. And we work together on our way to the celestial city, on our way to our eternal home. We work together to equip each other to be ministers and to do the ministry that God has called us to be. In fact, what does Jesus say, right? That the greatest one among you is your servant. That is our mandate, brothers, and anyone who aspires to be the office of an elder. I move to my fourth point where we have the Apostle Paul. This brings us to our text right, in Acts 20, where you really can read, my friends, and of course I can't go through these things, but brother elders, and anybody really who aspires to be an elder, I wish that you would take this scripture, I wish you would read it on your knees before God in prayer. Where do you start in these verses that we read together? From start to finish, we have set before us a model of God-honoring ministry. Do you want to know what it means to be an elder? Read Acts 20, where Paul speaks to the elders of the church. My friends, I believe that the Spirit of God gave this to us, not just so we would have a historical record of what Paul did, but so that we would have a record of what it means to be an elder. In verse after verse after verse, he talks about the hardships that he would face. He talks about his preaching of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about his prayers. He talks about not coveting money, silver, gold, or clothes. He talks about providing for himself. He talks about preaching publicly. He talks about from going house to house. My friends, everything is there. Open your Bible. Read this passage before God. And when you are convicted of your own shortcomings as an elder, beg for forgiveness. Let this be the constitution of every elder in our church. Again, I I would love to go verse by verse, line by line, through everything that's in that church. How terribly convicting, my friends. You know, as I was studying this passage, in the luxury of my office, and I see Paul laboring, knowing he's going to go to Jerusalem, knowing he's going to die, I hardly feel like an elder. I hardly feel like a pastor. None of us have to face the hardships that Paul faced. And yet God gives us this. 
Hopefully the same spirit, at least, would be in us that was in the Apostle Paul. And my friends, we don't want to, we don't want to stop with Paul, of course, do we? We want to go to the great shepherd. The great shepherd. He is the ultimate example of self-giving that we can find in Scripture, right? We want to be Christ-centered preachers. And so this morning also we have to end in Christ. First Peter 2 and verse 21. First Peter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You see, my friends, why was it that Jesus was able to be insulted and not to give it back? Why was it that he could be threatened but not threaten in return? Why? Verse 23, because he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Brothers, there's the strength for being an elder, the strength to take all kinds of abuse and yet to stand strong and not to abuse in return because we entrust ourselves to the one who knows the truth. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows whether we're diatrophies, loving to be first, or whether we are Paul giving ourselves to the work of the ministry. So this is the great shepherd, the ultimate in self-giving love. And finally, my friends, as congregation, your response to elders. And your response as elders is twofold. In the first place, I did not put this on the outline, but I need to say this right, that in the first place, there is the responsibility of the congregation to test, to be Bereans, to go to Scripture, right? Elders are not infallible. Right When they teach, that needs to be tested by the word of God, not in a, in, a, in, a, in a confrontational, angry way, right, but in a loving way as the Bereans did. But when the elders come with the word of God, the proper response to those who have oversight is submission. And so we find in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, through him then, That is, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders. And by the way, this is referring to your spiritual leaders. uh, Because notice, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. My friends, there's a point of self-examination for each one of us. The elders who rule this church, do you make it a joy for them or a grief? When your turn comes up on the list for house visitation or for any kind of visitation, is it a joy to meet with your family? Is it a joy to meet with you? Or is it a grief? This is what the scripture says. Our response to the leadership of the church when they come with the word of God should be submission and obedience. And that shepherding us should be a joy and not a grief. Well, my friends, this is the 
teaching then of the scripture as it pertains to elders. I pray this is, this is helpful to us. And that as the ministry of the elders goes forth, especially the new elders who have just been called into office, that we would make it for them a joy to do their work and that they would love to do it willingly and to the glory of God and to our edification, to our flourishing as the flock of God. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you've given some in the church to be elders, that you've given them the gifts and the anointing to go forth as your servants and to labor for the good of the flock of God. Lord, we pray for our current men who are elders, that you would bless them, Lord, with all that we have spoken of this morning. Lord, we confess that we fall so far short, and we certainly don't serve you with the zeal that the Apostle Paul did. We certainly don't serve you with the humility that we see in the great shepherd who, when he was reviled, did not revile again, but entrusted himself to him who knows that he is righteous. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us then, that you would remember each member of the congregation as they submit to the leadership of the elders. Lord, we pray that you would also give to the people here in this congregation the willingness to test the teaching of the elders by the word of God and to humbly and respectfully challenge them when that teaching goes awry. And I pray, Lord, that together we might march on our way to Zion, to our eternal home, and that our congregation would be bound together in love both those who, are, who have the responsibility to lead and those who have the responsibility to submit and to obey and to follow. Lord, we commit ourselves then into your hands and pray that we all would get behind the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, and follow him. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us through life, through death, and into eternal life, to the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. We ask these things in the name of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's turn then in the red hymnal to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. We'll turn to Psalm 80 and we'll sing. uh, Let's sing the first four verses of number 80 and version A. O shepherd of Israel, hear us, give ear. You lead Joseph forth like a flock. In your care. And what follows then in verses 1 through 4 of number 80a.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.